Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? (laughs) Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. Right, Achtung, Achtung, hello there. Um, uh, as you notice, James Holland, not here, or is he that side? I don't know. Um, uh, James isn't with us, um, and I'm here leaning against the, uh, the danger keep-off barrier at the arena at Bovington Tank Museum, at the Tank Museum here in sunny, beautiful Dorset. What a gorgeous day. And what, Well, what is today? Well, it's Tiger Day Eve. That's what it is. It's the night before Tiger Day when Santa Tiger wraps up all your presents and puts them at the end of your bed. Because here's the thing about, we have ways of making you talk. Um, Regular listeners, you know this, I know this. We downplay the tiger, because there's just too much tiger porn, basically, out there in the world of tank appreciation. Too many of you are too hot for the tiger. So James and I resist. Maybe we've basically got tiger envy. Maybe, um, you know, the, the case we've made for the Sherman and the Cromwell along the way. In the end, when you stood next to that sort of dusky yellow big cat, maybe some of it we're just overcompensating because ours is smaller. I don't know. Anyway, the point is, we're back at the Tank Museum where, um, if you're a regular listener, we was one of the first places we ever came. Um, and I'm going to be talking to David Willey, who we spoke to last time we were here as well, um, about Tiger Day, 
Um, it is fantastic the museum is here. Here's the thing, the museum um, at the start of the pandemic had 200 things in its gift shop online. Now it has 4,000 because there's an appetite apparently for making scale models of tanks out there. I, I, I have no idea about any of that. I couldn't relate to any of that at all. Um, I've bought a load of, a load of stuff from here um, in the last few months. Anyway, we're gonna, I'm gonna go see uh, David and he's gonna tell us about Tiger 131 because the focus of course is Tiger 131 which is the only running Tiger tank in the Tiger Mark I in the world that they have here at the museum and that in many ways is sort of um, how the museum really laid out its case for itself as a collection um, in the last couple of decades that they had a running Tiger, they used lottery funding to get that going um, it's an interesting piece of her heritage. It's a, like a teaching tool. It's, it's not exactly a piece of living history, but, but the, the, a great deal of the museum's philosophy is tied up in the tank. So I'm going to go listen to David, and he'll tell us of the, the torturous story of where was, the, where was this tiger tank captured? Because apparently there's some dispute about where it was because there were two encounters on the same day, blah, blah, blah. The Remy who collected it, bringing it back, sticking it in Horse Guards Parade in order to scare the bejesus out of people, which is the only reason I can think they possibly did that. And then it's eventual progress via Chertsey and the tank factory and being an R&D uh, uh, exhibit, basically, to becoming an exhibit here and then becoming a running exhibit here. So there's lots to talk to David about. Um, if you've ever run into David who watched him online because he's done a load of online stuff uh, during the pandemic from here, um, David can talk. So um, that's why James isn't here, because otherwise you'd, we'd enter some sort of parallel three-dimensional talk-off where um, all... Um, hind legs on all donkeys in all of Dorset would be sadly you'd end up with two-legged donkey monstrosities dragging themselves around having had all their hind legs talked off by the three of us so I'm here as a sort of talk firewall to prevent an out, out, outbreak of um, too much talk so um, it's the tank museum it's tiger day tomorrow it's tiger's day eve um, uh, I'll be talking to David Willie I hope you enjoy this um it's a fascinating guy and it's an amazing story and it is brilliant to be back at this museum that is 100% armoured fighting vehicle catnip for the likes of me and you too I expect. Right well I'm down now in the main display hall floor stood next to Tiger 131 and I'm delighted to say I'm joined by uh, David Willey. Hello David. Hi there welcome back. Um, it's it's a great pleasure to be back and of course you uh, you were one of our earliest I think our first location trip we did with We Have Ways um, uh, helped us get started. But Tiger 131, I know I've done a thing where I say Tiger, 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 hit the like it because it's big and all that. And I've kind of try. I'm nervous of the sort of fetishizing this tank too much. But here we are. It's the day before Tiger Day. We'll let that go. We'll fill our boots with Tiger stuff. This tank... I was struck, we've, we've just watched your talk um, in depth about this tank in particular. The thing I was really struck by right from the start is even in the design of this, this, tank, this tank's design takes into account to an extent how resource poor the Germans are, yet here it is, this great big monstrous machine. Yeah, it's, it's, it's funny, it all comes together with your point you just made about not going overboard on the Tiger. We have a major issue with the Tiger is that for us at the Tank Museum, we've got a Tiger Day. We run the only Tiger one left in the world of six of the left. So this is the only one yeah. working at the moment, as it were. Um, and yet, at the same time, the rest of the time, I'm standing here saying, but remember, there was only 1,300 of them. Compare that with the Shermans. Compared yeah. to, so when everyone's coming out with the 
were part of the problem in a way by making the tiger more impressive than perhaps it was or giving that impression at the same time I have a tendency if I'm not careful I can go too far the other way which is oh ignore it it wasn't that when in fact of course when it comes on the battlefield we're looking at a vehicle that it is such a leap forward in terms of thickness of armor, of gunpower, of, you know, for at least a year or so, potentially what it could do on the battlefield with very little fear of the enemy. Yeah. Meant it was a, a, such a huge step forward if we look in overall tank design. But immediately, I want to qualify myself to saying, actually, but there weren't that many of them, so it doesn't make a big difference. Yes, you see, I mean, so constantly, it's that dilemma. Yes, yes, you're sort of all, it's sort of a snakes and ladders thing when talking about the Tiger, isn't it? Because, I mean, after all, the year of the Tiger tank is 1943, really, isn't it? That's the year where, where it has dominance on yeah. the battlefield. There's nothing to match it. 1944, I mean, the, the thing that's striking about this is this captured, this is 131. When's this captured? So it's in April of 43. Right. So you're looking at, you see, the thing is, the, the first ones are going out late 42. Yep. They have this disastrous start because they've got, you know, like any new bit of kit, it's got a lot of teething trouble. Yeah. So that's not unique to the Tiger. Most and because tanks, it's a leap forward. So and, yeah. and But here they've got things they're learning on the job, but they go out to the east, a couple of them, or six of them go out to the eastern front. They have major problems there. Um, these are being built, Hitler's behind the programme, so you've got this issue of him constantly saying, so what's going on next? You know, he wants yeah. to be updated. Yeah. What's happening with the Tigers? And uh, as I was mentioning earlier, you know, one of the things that amazes me about this is this is a Tiger that comes out of the factory in February, is captured in April in North Africa. Yeah. The unit that's being formed to crew it, the CO, is put in charge of it literally and told the following week they're going to be moving uh, off to Tunisia. Yes. So one of the other points that not only is the technology new and bound to go through some problems, but a lot of the crews that have been put in these tanks, certainly in the early days, have you know they are just new to it as well so they're yeah. learning on the job yeah so i speculate that might be one of the reasons why tiger 131 is captured in the state it is because again whether the crew you know the guy who from Remy, who's yeah. sent out to help recover the tank one of the things he mentions he thinks the engine may have overheated are we looking at a crew in this tank who basically if you've got a brand new car and it's two months later you're going to be driving that car a lot more than these guys ever have the chance to drive this tank yes brand new vehicle two months later do you know what every button does yeah can you really get the best from it do you see so so i still think there's a lot of of suppositions that we sometimes go through with with you know oh it was such a powerful tank and weren't they the best and didn't they have the yeah. cool uniforms and everything take it apart i think the story is a little bit more subtle. well and also i mean that the, there's a lot of I'm struck by actually how much damage there is in this tank. I mean, especially at the at the back, the the, the all the engine assembly and the uh, uh, the exhausts and stuff are, are, are smashed up. If you if you know the, the the two big exhaust cowlings, that's what these are, aren't they? Yeah, they're they're protectors, to, so you just basically didn't touch them, or they get hot anyway. You're yeah, and they're, they're punctured and 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 shattered and crushed, and uh, you know the the the. the the um, uh, what, 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 storage bin on the, the back. Sto the bin, the, yes, it's a bin, isn't it? That's right. Storage bin on the back is similarly damaged. Now, uh, you know, in the telling of the story, it's always that there's a, a six pound around that, that jams under the mantlet and stops the 
turret from rotating, which is also good enough reason, good enough reason to bail out of a tank because you're no longer, you, you can't shoot at anybody anymore effectively. So could, you could, you know, but but this damage suggests, you know, that, that it's not just the one six pounder round. They're actually in a bit of, they're in dire straits. This crew. So if you look at the photographs when it's first captured, so the loader's hatch, which was subsequently replaced, is yeah. shattered. It must have been in the open position to be hit. Yeah. Um, so when you see the damage that's done to that, if you were in that space behind it, no doubt, you know, as I was saying earlier, it probably gave you a bit more than a headache. Yeah. Um, the if you go into the driver's position, the early photographs when it was first captured. There's quite a bit of an indentation and smashed metalwork above yeah. your head. Yeah. So, and we're around the rear of the tank, you can see at the moment. So this is almost certainly blast damage from high explosives yeah. that have gone through things like the FIFA air filters, yeah. etc. So what you're looking at when you're seeing this is what we don't know for certain is when that tank was in combat, and I still hope as, you know, someday whether a set of letters or something from the crew, you know, something does emerge, I can't help but feel that maybe the crew were wounded or certainly deeply shocked yeah. by the action they've well, just gone through. Well, one of the other things is they've been told this, they, 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 I expect they've been told this tank's indestructible and impermeable to... Um, uh, any anti-tank kit they might run into. It certainly was, it certainly was in 1942, but the six-pounder is a widespread weapon by, uh, uh, by 1943, isn't it? And so maybe they, they, they take a, a considerable knock, the turret jams, and they think, oh, it, is, it isn't indestructible. After all, I'm, I'm out of here. Yeah. Is, you know, after we have to... You do, although they're, although they're, you know, and again, lots of, lots of conceptions you have to sort of have to sort of uh, chip away at. Although they're steely Germans and although they're a schwerer panzer uh, uh, outfit, they're still they're still blokes. And, and just as you said in your talk that when a British guy first saw it, he, you know, I fucking shit my I shit my fucking pants, whatever it is. It's, it goes the other way round too, doesn't it? And, and uh, yeah, and I, I just think go go through, look at the history, and we've got it here in the museum. But right from the worst first ones to the last ones, you have got to be a very dedicated crew to stick in a tank that is immobile. Yep. Uh, you've got to have nerves of steel because, again, if you look at the photographs when it's captured, the British soldiers are really close and up around it. Yeah. So the idea, again, if you're in an immobile vehicle or yeah. someone stalled the engine, again, read all the accounts, yeah. the first urge is to abandon the vehicle fairly quickly Yeah. yeah. Well, you, because you're just waiting to go up think, in flames well, the otherwise. One's, the next one's going to actually kill us all. So. Uh, and that's true. I don't care what, what you, you know, for any side, um, look at the British in Normandy, yeah. okay, sort of, you know, when you bail out, etc. The fact that some of the tanks were recoverable, you know, so when we go to things like Goodwood, the fact yeah. that loads of those tanks that the guys have abandoned are very quickly put back yeah. into action. But if something's come through or something stopped you, the first urge is you are, your life is still more important than well, that yes, bit I mean, of kit. I mean, I'm loath to criticise. After all, it's like the, um, the, you know, American paratroopers were fined if they used their reserve unnecessarily. Well, who's to judge that? <laughs> yes, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Your pay got docked. Um, so, so... I mean, the, the, obviously, this tank, when it was first seen on the battlefield, this is a massive culture shock, because there's a Mark III over there, isn't there? Um, and, and just the sort of, uh, it's a mini Moke, 
and uh, and uh, and an Audi Q5 in terms of yeah. The, the so we're difference. back back to this trying to sort of compare and contrast and everything. Yeah. But ten centimeters of frontal armor on this when when you only look at at the time we're still coming out there you know there's photographs of things like valentine's yep. crusaders yep. and everything passing by a knocked out tiger um the 88 millimeter gun that could quite effectively knock out pretty much every british tank on the battlefield from about yep. two kilometers away so there is no denying that this is a step change in tank design yep. and used well is a real difference you know and if you read their early accounts the, the the troops coming back yes they're full of all we can't get the spare parts yes we can't get this yeah. we can't all they're breaking down all over the place etc but at the same time they are absolutely delighted by the fact that they can be on the battlefield and if you read that you know how they're supposed to use them at 45 degrees to the enemy yeah. etc you know you're almost in some circumstances impervious to enemy yeah. fire yeah, yeah so it means what they talk about is tactically you can move across you can go places on the battlefield that any other person will be thinking well hang on let's skirt around the edge here let's not do this these guys go straight at you across you, you know because they they just know whatever's being fired at them very little chance early on it's going to penetrate yeah. so it's it's you it's this again we come back to you know this is a very powerful bit of kit yeah. in the right hands with everything going in the right direction at the same time the key one i come back to all the time is but the chances of you as an allied tank soldier bump, bumping into one is still remarkably thin yeah because there's not that many of them out there. Well, and most of them, uh, and the, the majority of, uh, uh, unless I'm wrong, are deployed on the Eastern Front yeah. anyway. Yeah, so um, you're, you're, and even there, again, statistically, yeah, this yeah. is a pinch in the ocean yeah. compared to the number of T-34s, and KVs, etc. You know, it's an upgun Mark IV that's doing, all, that's doing the donkey work. Yeah, or Sturmgeschütz later on, yeah. you know, so it's, it's what's the typical... Yeah back again actually we're at the tank museum we always talk about tanks but tanks aren't even typical on some of the battlefields yeah. so you know back to actually you, you you know some infantry go through most of the war and don't see tanks that often yeah. so it's another one where we we tend to sort of put the the laser light on what we're interested in or what the story yeah. in our area is but most of the rest of the day actually you know it's about artillery it's about infantry it's about the blooming boredom of warfare yeah. a tank going past is you know sometimes quite a major event yes 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 which is why it gets written up yeah of course it's yeah. why the, then attention's focused on it um when the british get hold of this um they ship it back to 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 Chertsey, to um to the tank factory and they what do they do do they 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 take it apart and put it back together i mean uh, is there did they find a manual is there a manual with the they, they don't the, actually they've captured documents that, that right. actually help and we've actually published years ago there was a hmso book which is basically the british intelligence summaries yeah. and we're about to republish that so keep an eye on our website we'll do. um that that book actually shows what we knew about the tiger from press cuttings etc yeah. when we've got the captured tank what they're doing first of all is they're they're looking at it are there points of vulnerability so yes. some are taken off for firing trials so when they've got other tigers this one is stripped pretty much is there things we can learn 
to whether it's to emulate, to copy, to understand a difference. So um, it's hard sometimes to say, did we actually pick up anything from this tiger? Well, that was going to be my next question. What is there to learn apart from we need to, we need to get a 17-pounder onto a medium tank hastily? Yeah, so well, we, we've already going down that route figure that in out a anyway, sense. Yeah. yeah, so a 17-pounder is no bad thing. We can, so if you look at Tiger 131, one of the first things they do is they film it driving around for a recognition film. Yep. So it's this is how we identify this chaps, which yep. is still a key can, you know, in modern warfare as well. So we don't have what's called blue on blues. We're not yep. firing our own, our allies. We know, you know, when we should be panicking, etc. So that idea, it's filmed that way. I don't think that when you read the reports, there's anything they slap their thighs and, and go, my goodness, we never thought of that. Let's copy this, chaps. But what it is doing is influencing that idea of the gun and armour race yes. is one we need to be further up that yes. chain on because we are either going to have to get the 17-pounder or later the 77-millimeter that goes on the Comet with enough penetration to make a difference on the battlefield. Yeah. So that is a, is a key outcome. We know we have got an issue. And the other one is just basic tactics, which is, okay, we fired at the front, we fired at the side, you've got a six-pounder chaps, have a go at the side, you're pretty much on for that. Yeah. So it's that kind of what you might call the firing trial experience. Well, so, which, so that's let the, let the tank come on to you then. I mean, uh, on, a, on a recent podcast, we looked at um, one of the war diaries for Arnhem, and it's the, it's the HQRA report, and he's saying, why did we lose our 17-pounders and six-pounders? Six it's hard to say, but... Here's how the infantry perform. And the infantry keep forgetting that they, they, keep, they think you've got to bring the gun to the tank. Because in fact, what you've got to do is get the tank to come to the gun. Now, obviously, you can read that and think, oh, well, yeah, that makes it. But that, we're talking about lots of nerve here and lots of nerve required to, 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 get, to get a tiger to come into your anti-tank screen and your trap and wait for him to be at the point where you're shooting into his side. He's effectively flanked you. For you to be able to do that so so there's quite a lot of this that, that's requiring quite a lot of uh, cool nerve um training planning and you know uh so what all those other all those yeah other, all those so other one of the things. lines i said earlier is when i've i've talked i have the great privilege here and you know they're getting thinner on the ground all the time but if you ever and i say this to everyone get a chance to talk to a world war ii veteran yeah you know firstly tip your hat to them sort of thing and then that idea that what they sometimes say the thing that fascinates me is that reading accounts, talking to veterans, everyone had a unique experience of the war. Yep. So you do have to be a little bit careful that we don't sort of make everybody's experience the same. Yes, yes. And Ken Tout, who I'm yes. not sure if you've read his books. Oh, absolutely. Met, yeah. You know. yeah, yeah. Now, Ken's still going. And one of the things he says, he said in Normandy, once they'd worked out how to deal with heavy armour, they had a level of confidence in their unit, yeah. which is hard perhaps for us looking back as if, oh, we were all in terrible thin Shermans all the time or Cromwell's, uh, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. and the German Tomica cranker. It's hard to take that on when, in fact, these guys know some of them were bloody good at their job. Yeah. They pick it up, they've got balls of steel, and they yeah. work out the way of dealing with this well, because they've got to. You yeah, know, they're, well, they're, they're, they can't they, go they've home. They've got to. And they call their Charlie tank up in the troop who comes up and... And they save the tigers up for him. I mean, so, so they do that. So, so Ken's of that unit with, yeah. you know, as you're going in with Joe Eakins, etc. So you see that side of it. The other side I was amazed as well, people like Reg Spittles, when he, he was uh, the corporal, he's quite often in what was considered the point or the lead tank, he's in a Cromwell. One of the things we got him talking 
to modern soldiers and they all asked him what's the first round you carry when you're the lead tank he ended up arguing smoke because when you saw that boxy shape in the hedge up ahead he knew it was pointless him thinking i'm going to do all this one on him yeah he put smoke and what's the first thing those guys in that tank are either going to be doing is number one i can't see bugger all yeah number two is this the symbol for an air attack so all of a sudden i'm going to be waiting for the here comes the fighter bombers and everything yes um and that may lead them to back off or expose themselves so he's so got mo- well and by moving confirm that they're there i mean uh, and they confirm that they've seen you and uh, that you've, you yeah. you're a step ahead of them so right. that idea that he was so this idea these guys are working out these tactics on the hoof and you're fine different tank crews come to different conclusions yep. they work out different ways of doing yeah. that but i thought reggie's one there was brilliant because it was literally the young soldiers thinking because so often in an engagement, historically, they've done all the analysis. It's whoever gets the first aim ground off first yeah. uh, and the quickest in, the, in many ways. Yeah, so yeah. that sense of actually, if we can disrupt you doing that, we've got a second chance. And if you're the point tank... Gosh, that's fascinating. If you're the point tank, you are likely to be the one. You know, they might be waiting for you to go past because we're going to, you know, the usual one you start at the back of the column or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So so some of those things, and I, I just think, and again, listening to how these different people, we can read a manual, we can yeah. see what's said there. Listen to what the blokes themselves say. And there's plenty of those beautiful, you know, memoirs out there well, Ken's, Ken's, Ken's account of that attack, the, the, you know, the Wittmann encounter, yeah. that they're, they're putting all that, they're, everyone with the 75mm are putting their HE onto the, onto the Tigers to suppress them so that they can get, they can get the, the yeah. Firefly to bear. I mean, that, that, you know, when you think about it, that's obviously, that's obviously what you do. And it, and it also says that the, that the Sherman with the 75mm is not powerless in that encounter. It's actually crucial to it. Yeah, you know, and, and I, it's I, t- teamwork and all that. Yeah, sort of they thing. they do, and when they're doing that as well, if you read, you see the year after the war ended, the Northampton Yeomanry write up a little book, and in there that engagement is written about with the fact it's Joe Eakin's tank has yeah. and Stan Boardman are knocking out those three targets in a row, which yeah. is why I get a bit okay. There's confusion. I said it earlier. We have to learn that we can reinterpret and we learn history. But there's no doubt it's in that war diary. It's written immediately after the war yeah. that that is what happened on that day, which is why I get fed up of all these modern people coming along with all this bollocks about, oh, no, it was over there. It's all this other stuff and everything. <laughs> Listen to what those blokes yeah. said at the time. And also they weren't, they weren't writing that at the time with the, with no, the Wittmann myth nothing. in mind. No, they knew Absolutely. Joe Eakin said that. that you know, it's years career. later before he finds out, you know, that it's yeah. a guy in a black uniform in a country that he shouldn't be in, you yeah, know. Exactly. So, so I, I, anyway, I, you know, I'm starting to rant. But the, no, no. the, we, we, the, like the point we like about... The, we like the red meat. That <laughs> issues is, but that's why, again, I would say, so, again, there's a Tiger tank. These guys have to learn how to fight it. It's a war of national survival. These guys have not got the option yeah. of saying, okay, we'll pack up and we're going to leave and we're not going to do this yeah. sort of thing. They have got to find ways around it. So whether that is deception, let's fire smoke, let's yeah. imagine there's going to be planes coming over, you guys be a bit yeah. better getting out of here. Let's, discretion, let's yeah. back off. Discretion, uh, Let's get often. out of the yeah, way, yeah, you yeah. know, so let's, let's not, we don't have to 
to take these guys on at this moment. Um, let's start finding our way because that guy is very quickly, once he knows he's been located, he is going to be waiting for the other blokes to work their way around the rear. Um, we'll keep a couple of vehicles here so yeah. that they'll keep them engaged, keep them facing forward. Yeah. Your mate's going left flank or right flank where the armor's thinner. And that guy sitting there is going to be thinking like, I know this is going to be coming at some point soon. How long do I give it before I decide I've got to back out or yeah. manoeuvre again? Right, we've got to take a break now, unfortunately. I, I mean, I could just talk to David forever. Um, he knows everything. Uh, we'll see you in a tick. Welcome back to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Um, I'm talking to David Willey at the Tank Museum, the curator of the Tank Museum, to myself and for you. How fantastic is that? Here we go. Now, to change the subject completely, restoration. Famously, this is the only running Mark I in the world. Um, you centre the day around Tiger Day. It's a massive attraction. You've got your platinum members here, whatever you call them. And the museum has adapted and survived incredibly um, nimbly to deal with the, the, the pandemic and the challenges it's offered. And I've bought an awful lot of gear from your model shop. Um, when you're restoring a vehicle like this, what... Uh, I'll compare it to something in, in my professional life. There's a venue in Leeds called the City Varieties, which is where they used to film the good old days. It's a music hall, a proper Victorian music hall, and it, it evolved from four buildings, I think pubs that were all next door to each other, that gradually the owner bought more of them and knocked through and built a theatre inside the building. And they did a massive English heritage restoration on it that I finished, I think finished sort of seven or eight years ago. It's beautiful, but they had to decide which year they were restoring the Leeds City Varieties to. And I think, that, I think they picked a year out of the hat, like 1898 or whatever. But obviously they had to put a modern PA in, a modern lights. But they got an unobtrusive modern PA and unobtrusive modern lights. And then they had to decide how they were going to get wheelchairs into the building. So you've got this beautifully perfectly restored, but there's an enormous glass, glass lift in this, in, on the outside of the building and a hole punched into the building to get, which is fine and fair enough. What year do you pick? Do you put a wheelchair lift in, as analogies, you know, how do you, how do you, how do you, you know, because, because if the point is having it running, surely what you do is stick a, um, a modern engine in it so it's reliable, it starts every time, it um, won't catch fire um, and destroy your exhibit, you know, um, and all those sort of things. How do you make those decisions? So. We are a, officially we're what they call an accredited museum with a designated collection. So there's standards that we have to try and work to and there's industry, what I would call advice. Yeah. And the ethic really is where you can save originality, yeah. you should. There are things that cross that. So sometimes we're looking at materials that are now banned. We've got asbestos yes, or whatever. Course, yeah. You just can't say, oh, well, well, you know, it's original asbestos. Let's keep it there. Yeah. Sorry about your lungs, chaps, who are working on it. You know, yeah. that, that, you just can't do that. So some things have to change. When we first restored this tank, a modern fire suppression system was put in there by a company called Kitty Gravner. Very yeah. grateful to them because of the risk of a petrol engine of this age suddenly causing an engine fire. Um, and historically, we know these yeah, things lose, were not uncommon. Lose, and you lose this incredible historic yeah, exhibit. Yeah, so an engine fire, you might be able to re rescue most of the vehicle, but it's still going to be a fairly damaging thing to yeah. happen. And it's not going to look good if that's on the media or the day you're driving it. No. So ultimately, we took that out 
because it was very intrusive in the engine bay and other things we were doing. So I would argue you there is no right or wrong answer, but you might want to ask yourself a better set of questions to give a product at the end or a set of answers that fit your establishment, what you're trying to achieve and what we are. If you're a private person, you do what you damn well like with it because it's (laughs) yours, yeah? Yeah, yeah. We are a public in essence. We're an independent charity. We're doing this on behalf of the Royal Armoured Corps. We're telling their story, everything else that way. So we've got issues there that levels of expectation that if we, you know, decide we want to put a new engine in this to just so it runs around, there'll be loads of people saying what a great idea you know the tiger goes on running for another five another ten years let's put another engine in it's good it brings money we're changing it and we're changing it in ways that start eating into that level not only of its originality that survived but when that engine starts does a spitfire seem quite the same if actually we've got a modern mtu diesel that we'll get you know what i mean everyone will be going whoa, 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 whoa. it's got to be a merlin or a griffin you see what so- I mean? Okay, so because you because you said earlier, and I noticed your lecture you talked, but you were in the fine art world before. Yeah, is it like restoring a painting? Yeah, so where I disagree with the assumption, a lot of funding bodies early on had real problems with 20th century mechanical or industrial heritage. What are we trying to save, and how do we go about doing that in a sensible way? Now, fine art. Let's, the example might be a bit of sculpture or painting. It's almost like the aspiration is the day it left the artist's studio. Yes. Or we've flaked a couple bits up here. Let's yes. tie that in so the eye's not drawn away from it. So there's some things, and there's a huge convention that's built up over centuries of what you do to a work of art. 20th century mass-produced objects, what do we do? I've got another one of these wheel hubs. Let's bung that one on. We've done this and everything. So how much originality do you leave? And it's been an interesting, because the debate still goes on. There's people in the museum profession think we're complete cowboys for running Tiger 131, which is a kind of unique historical item. But when they close or fail, I'm, I'm not rubbing my hands together in glee, but I'm trying to say, actually, in the modern world, you've got to look at your circumstances. If you're centrally funded and money's not an option or you've got a backer, actually, you might not have the same pressure on you to do something. We're an independent charity. We need bums on seats, but the and we value, need people the value in, But the value in terms of bums on seats of this of this tank running, it, 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 it's been enormous put, you, you can't to put us. A price on it, really, can you? you? Can't, well, it's been enormous to us, and it's helped do what the original trustees' intention was, which is put the tank museum, help put it on the map. Yeah. So on one side, that way, at the same argument is we don't want to go too far because if everyone just thinks you can whack an engine in the back of something that likes a tiger and drive it around and claim it's a tiger actually where's the originality gone and the story and the issues see i err on the side of keeping it running because it is tiger 131 and we all know that if it was up to me but luckily i'm not in charge of a museum um in fact and you're the last person because i'd try and get them all going I'd want that. I'd want them all running, and uh, and you'd have a, a a grand parade down to pool or something, and they'd all break down, obviously. But um, the original engines over there, isn't it? The, yeah. the original power plants over there. So what's in? Which is a Maybach, so, isn't it? So it's a, something they call a Maybach HL210. Goes in the early production Tiger ones. Yeah. Ours is a very early production Tiger. That engine was taken out, we're not 100% certain when, but sectioned yeah. as a teaching aid for the military before this even comes here in '51. What we've ended up doing is putting a HL230, 
and the story behind it we basically went through a number of different engines trying to either get one to work properly um, we had um, a, a spare engine that was actually lot like you know one of these ones that was sat on a stand showing people what a HL230 yeah. looked like probably from a panther we're not sure yeah. um, one had a twisted block we've done a whole load of things so the actual block that is in there at the moment that's running is actually a new old stock block yep. that we were able to fit a lot of the original bits of running gear to pistons etc yeah um and it's running so what you're listening to is a perfectly a world war ii engine that yep. was in a tiger one it wasn't in this tiger one right um how many hours to 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 run this for now how do you how, how long do you run it for on tiger day tomorrow so we we do what we tend to do is we run the tank about twice a year yeah it's run up on the wednesday before it goes out yeah and we the word in military terms is track mileage we limit that track mileage yes of course so we don't wear it down too much unless we absolutely have to and then whenever it runs it's either got someone in or someone's paying us a bit of money to enjoy the day or doing whatever so you know we're trying to milk it that way unashamedly so when <laughs> it goes out um it tends to do it'll be doing like a couple of laps which i think will end up being like on the course by the time it's finished probably a couple of kilometers maximum yep. before it's coming back inside um having done that around that track out there yeah. and we limit the number of like when we we're on the fury set it was all the arguments how many gear changes how long how whatever right so we really try and do that within the same time there is no point trying to start it up and do it all if you haven't let the engine get to the right temperature if you yep. haven't you yep. know so you don't want to do it the wrong way which is limiting in some areas and the next minute you're wearing it out quicker by doing that does it get the equivalent of the footballer's ice bath afterwards you know it does really, it has basically really, an oil change right um so and it's put to bed the way we do it in different ways how it's put together and put to bed again afterwards um it's a, a lengthy process. In fact, we're just missing at this moment. Uh, Chris is actually talking that right. startup procedure, yeah. how we go through all of that, just making damn sure everything's done in the right way and everything's recorded. So we write in a book because, again, the driver's told every time if he hears a new rattle, stop. We'd rather investigate yeah, that new than noise, he just keeps rattle, going. Yeah, 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 exactly. There's no radio in there to turn up and drown it out like you do in your car. Yeah. So that's <laughs> a very, you know, we want to know if there's something going wrong or the temperature gauge. They're always told, don't care if there are thousands of people watching, we'd much rather you pull over and we investigate oh, God, yes. yeah. than you just keep going because, oh, come on, it's a tank, let's, let's push it. You know, it just doesn't work that way. And how many spare engine blocks have you got? How many spark plugs and how many, how many so, miles so of we've, wiring? And we've been looking, we've been doing an inventory because I'm still amazed at what we do find. We have a backlog of storage issues, so we've got huge old stillages full of stuff that came down from the army, you know, yeah. sometimes it's 10, 15 years ago. We either had to take it at the time or it was dumped, you know, so we've never been able to go through. So it's really hard for us, hand on heart, to say we've only got the following yep. because we were surprised ourselves to see how much we've got that we are looking at the moment, putting together a spare engine for this tank and looking at what's the prospects for the future. Yeah. Um, how long do we give it? Are other people going to be starting to cast new engine blocks? Yeah. When do we start saying almost your point when do we start saying do we try and keep originality by removing bits yeah but they can go back when the life of the running vehicle yeah. comes yeah, yeah, to yeah. an end you yeah. see so you're putting it back the turret, the turret right, it right does down. but the issue with the vehicle when it was hit 
it's actually indented so that lovely turret ring is not perfect we have in the past actually recorded it rotating under its engine power yeah but we don't like doing that anymore because to be honest there's a couple of points you can tell it's struggling yeah which are pinch points from when it had the battle the damage because you wouldn't be able to drive it through this door with a turret sideways would you um, well, you have to turn. The interesting thing is, of course, we have to turn the turret sideways to lift the engine deck yes, to go yes. through the start procedure. Yeah, yeah. So these are all these other wind wonderful ah. things. So the, um, you know, this is not a Le Mans quick start vehicle. You don't run across the road and jump in and press one button and off you go, which is again Shouting on the war movies. Yeah, no. exactly. Remember, these are, you know, ten hours maintenance, one hours driving. Right. So that's your kind of that's your kind of ratio. And that was wartime. You see, and that's right. what we sometimes forget about. These things, you know, they are the minute the thing stops. You'll see all the crews getting out with these oily rag and everything going around, greasing nipples, checking levels, doing everything with that. Because, again, one of my constant lines is a tank is not like your family car, but probably the nearest analogy we do is the car. You know, you jump in it, it's got an engine, it's going to drive. Yeah, that's what Actually, we're used to. That's how we're used to relating to, to, um, vehicle, to vehicles, motor vehicles. Yeah. Yeah, 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 this yeah. is hugely labour intensive yeah. just to get that hours driving. Why would... Um, well, I think I know the answer, but um, we've touched on it twice. There are only 1,300 of these. Why are there so few? Why did they build so few? Why did they not crack a proper mass production thing because you because in your lecture you show that the the, the wheels are essentially being made in work they've been made in workshops they're not being made on a production line basis so you end up with that thing that the parts don't match that that each tiger is although it has the appearance of a piece of mass produced military equipment it's act they're actually all individual and bespoke, bespoke in, yeah, in, in, yeah. in a sense and, and when you look at a sp when you look at the riveting on a on a, on a Spitfire, uh, you know the wartime riveting of Spitfire, that's being done by Mavis at her own pace and her yeah. own distance, and it's not done uniformly and not the way we do it now. Well, obviously, you'd have a, a machine punching the holes. Why didn't they? Why weren't they able to turn it round? And why are there only thirteen hundred? Yeah. So the skill sets available in Germany. One of the things I was talking earlier is Hitler's fascinated by the motor industry. He loves the Henry Ford. He thinks yeah. his work practices everything. He wants that Germany to copy that. The German motor industry is tiny in yeah. the early thirties when he comes to power. He goes to the motor show every year in Berlin because he wants to show the Nazi party's backing. He puts money into the Mercedes racing yep. team, etc. Yep. He famously backs Porsche for the people's car. Although they only make one. Exactly. So you, yep. you, you, know, you pay all your Reichsmarks towards it as a people's yep. car, but you don't actually get one because the war comes along in between. Um, so there are a whole host of things that Hitler is trying to get Germany better at. But the truth is the war has come early for the German military. They have a major issue in terms of production facilities, raw materials, and of course, oil and petrol yes. to actually keep the vehicles going. So there's one set of arguments that sometimes we're almost mocking the Germans. The propaganda gives us a view of the Stukas, the tanks yeah. racing forward, the sophisticated quick uh, kit, but the rest of the German army is coming up way behind on its boot leather and with horse-drawn transport. Yeah. You know, but it's like you can't fault their ambition, in, in, <laughs> in, in, in a sense, um, for want of a better way of putting it. But but so so the, the, and this tank is a good example of that because. Um, they were going to put a 75mm gun on, but it, it, it tape with a taper, and it, but it requires tungsten. They haven't got, got the, that, yeah. They haven't got the tungsten. The tungsten's too expensive. Um, the, the wheels, as you said, they're actually all... 
they're all ever so slightly different. Well, they're, they're rubber-coated, and they yeah. before the end of the Tiger 1 production, they have to go over to steel wheels because they haven't got enough rubber, yeah. even synthetic rubber. They can't make enough. So there is this dilemma that the Germans have of going for sophistication, but can they make... You see, you could argue, because they couldn't make mass-produced numbers even if they were making simpler things, because they simply didn't have the raw materials yeah. or couldn't give enough petrol. So everyone says they should have made another thousand Stugs, but if they hadn't got the fuel for another thousand Stugs... Which is demonstrating their aircraft production. After all, where the, the fighter production in 1944 is incredible, but yeah. the, there's, there's no, got fuel, pilots or no fuel. fuel, no pilots. Yeah. You know, like, so well, slow hand yeah. clap, well done everyone. So you could argue in a way that they made, they made the right amount of Tigers because that's the amount of cycles they could make. That, that, um, it's, it's a tricky one. So you've got arguments on both sides. Could you have made it more simple? Could you have done... They couldn't have followed the American or Russian model in those sheer numbers. No. Because they just didn't have the industrial backing or the raw materials to do it. At the same time, you do wonder. There's, you know, when Speer comes along and he's talking to Hitler, you know, one of the things they try and do is knock on a head these vanity products and this range of different types of vehicles, which they're all aware creates problems for yeah. themselves. And they are trying to learn from the Allies. Um, you know, the, the Adolf Hitler tank program, Speer is getting Hitler to agree, we need to simplify. So the last model Panzer IV is made in a certain way to speed production and simplicity. Yeah. So those things are going on, yeah. but to us from the outside, it just seems so ridiculous that the Germans are building things like a King Tiger, the biggest, thirstiest tank of the war, when they are running out of fuel and they're having to change the design of the wheels. So there's just a sausage of rubber pinched yeah. in the wheel to try and take the vibration out. Just because they can't help themselves. Because, well, and it is. It's that <laughs> peculiar dilemma. Although yeah. some would argue they probably did the right thing because actually going for technology, if they can't go the other way, why not go top-end technology? It's an issue because it's so pertinent, you know, Right military now. background, Dad, right. exactly right that. This, right this minute. Absolutely, you, we're you, talking a bit to the army about this. There is no point you having a Formula One of tanks if the driver is only capable of learning how on a Ford Transit and doesn't have the skill set to get the Formula One car going. Yeah. Do you see what I mean? So why yeah. give them a really sophisticated bit of kit yeah. if there's too many things to go wrong or they don't have enough training time or skills yeah. to get the best from it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, uh, and, uh, and, but then you also need a, a culture that's attuned to armor warfare, armored warfare anyway if you're going to build tanks and you know Which of course we are in britain aren't we well I, I don't know you know i mean this is the this is the great don't, don't fall for it we are still going to have tanks we're going to do an upgrade on challenger 2 um that was all a bit of ankle showing of people trying to say let's get the argument going beforehand so you heard it here first folks you did so and we, so we have ways exclusive the upgraded challenger 2 <laughs> I with, the gun, with the gun from the leopard on it so it's basically a 120. Don't yeah. ignore the stuff about the 130 going on that RBSL right. have, have put out. That's just, again, a just bit of fantasy stuff. That's yeah. not what the program is. But um, that very tank is up the road from us as we speak. Um, so it's, it's, it will happen. It just won't be yeah. enough numbers to make the slightest yeah. bit of difference okay. in the future. If, if, should the balloon go up? Right. Yeah. Okay. Um, one last question, because you, you have a busy day tomorrow. You have a busy day getting ready for tomorrow. Um, and I, I can't tell you how much... I mean, I, I really would love to pick your brains actually all day on this and then be here tomorrow, but we can't do that. What happened to the Tigers? Uh, you know, here's, we, know, we, we know the history of this, this, this tank extremely well, sort of in, in, in intimate detail. It's pr in fact, it's probably the best recorded Tiger tank 
of the Second World War, isn't it? Down, you know, down to the last nut and bolt. Um, although, interestingly, you don't really know where it was knocked out and uh, where it was pinched. Quite. Sort of do, but don't quite. Which is, which I think is really, really interesting. That something this well documented. New history comes like all the time. Yeah. But this is, but this is, this is the nature of history. After all, as you, mm. you uncover things. Oh, hang on a minute. I, they were, they were the other way around. After all, what happens to all the tigers at the end of the Second World War? I mean, the Russians have got some. The Americans have take some, stick them on ranges. So, so there, there's. One thing that it still fascinates me today, because sometimes you get people saying, oh, they did that, or we tell some story about, here's one on the range being shot, and they all email in saying, oh, you know, the Philistines, why did they do this and everything? Well, number one, during the war, there was a war to win, so we just had to know how to beat the bastards first. So stop all this this caterwauling as if, like, you know, they should about thinking about the games play or model makers of the modern era, and they should have saved more of them, shouldn't they? (laughs) You know, um, oh, yeah, we'll lose to fascist Germany, shall we? But just so that you've got a tank or two left, over in the, you know so there was an absolute <laughs> key issue yeah they have to get on top of first of all the second thing is i'll do the analogy now so it's like iraqi armor so after the first gulf war huge yeah. amounts of kit came back yeah um it was bombarded around the country played with done you know gate guards everything none of us give a monkeys about that at the moment but there will be a point in the future where people say that was an original type 59 that was yeah. captured in iraq yeah. you see what i mean so at the moment we don't give a monkey now if you're also in one of those countries that tigers ended up in so it's you're the you know it's by the side of the road in france this is a symbol of oppression yes they were the invaders get yes. that bloody thing out of my sight yes all right so one or there's two that, there's that king tiger in the ardennes isn't there and i've always sort of wondered about that because i understand sherman's escape guardians or, or as memorials or yeah. or centaurs or cromwells or whatever all over europe i get that but but there is that Koenig's tiger, isn't there? In, um, yeah, there's a Tiger One by the side of the road in Vermutier in yeah. Normandy. Now What's that all about? That, that was pushed. It was basically it was pushed off the road, went down a bank, was hard for the scrap men to recover. But they did start cutting it up, and then by the mid 70s, they suddenly thought, well, hang on a second, this is now the level of interest is a different level, yeah. not scrap value, historical. Yeah. You know, isn't yeah. it good as a tourist thing, etc. So it's dragged up and put there. So sometimes you get these accidents of history. Why something? think was saved yeah but a lot of the time you have to think about these are things that um you know represent invasion and oppression yeah and they're also you know if there's anything useful let's go and use those wheels you know you go around the ardennes you find every other farmer's got track links to keep his gate closed you know with weights and everything yeah so let's use what we can scrap the rest get rid of it and let's rebuild our society because not everyone wants to remember there was nazi tanks here you know just just last year five years now we're all fascinated we all want them we all think they're the best things since sliced bread every games player every model maker every you know people interested um but interesting we're not across that spectrum you see because tanks are big iconic sexy how many people collect German wartime bicycles? An awful lot fewer because they're not quite as woo, are yeah, they? Yeah. You know what I mean? Well, so. certainly stood next to it is definitely plenty woo. Um, uh, David, thank you so much for talking to us. Um, uh, I hope tomorrow goes really well. Um, and thank you again for your time today. It's just the most brilliant privilege to be able to come here, talk to the curator, pick his brains. He knows literally everything about this vehicle. And also, but also to, also to, to talk about what history is and how history shifts 
um, uh, you know, because there's been a lot of debate about history too. Uh, I mean, aside from tank history, what are we saying it from? We're at the British Tank Museum in Bovington. We have a view from the British viewpoint, inevitably, and we're the Royal Armour Corps Museum. You'll go to a different museum, different part of the world, different periods, etc. That history is going to change how you look at it. Yeah. And I'm fascinated by the fact that we're living through an era where the guys who did it are just dying out. How will history be rewritten when those blokes aren't quite around? Yeah. And I'm already, this is where we're acutely conscious here, already you've got people coming around. Are you sure about this? Did the Holocaust, for example, really oh. exist? Did you? Yeah. All of those things, which for me, it's just, if you've met the man, talk to them. We've, we've got an interview over there with a guy who was at Belson being liberated. Yeah. That, for him, what he says about it, and then the fact that at the moment in the world, there's people who quite happily come out and say, oh, that was just well, propaganda or something like that. Well, and I've, that I've met the Rabbi Hardman who did the burials at Belson. So, met him many years ago. I, you know, the moment anyone starts with any of that, you think, no, I'm... Exactly. Uh, we just did a gesture then that you wouldn't have heard on the podcast. Again, David, thanks very much no for talking to us. No problem at all. Cheers, Total then. pleasure. Thank you.